John Michael O'Brien was recently appointed as the President and Chief Executive Officer of the National Pharmaceutical Council, NPC, one of the key thought-leading organizations in Washington, D.C., championing biopharmaceutical innovation. Prior to joining NPC, Dr. O'Brien was a senior advisor to U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services Alex Azar in the Trump administration. He has held senior policy positions at Care First Blue Cross Blue Shield, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, and the United States Senate as a policy fellow. John, always a pleasure. Great to see you here. Well, thanks, Dwayne. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> uh, it's great to see you and, and Joe and Gwen here, and I can't think of a better place to do this. Obviously, we're at Bio, and uh, you know, 13,000 people post-COVID, which is pretty darn impressive, frankly. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. This it year. is. It is. And have you noticed how many students are here, both Tons. in the keynote? And uh, I was on Saturday having a conversation with a young pharmacy student from Howard University who is traveling with a pack of students who are interested in biotech. And it is just really exciting to see the future of biotech here and health policy research here, and to be here to share the exciting ways uh, that we're contributing to that conversation at NPC. You've worn just about every policy hat in healthcare <laughs> in DC that can be worn. Uh, 20 years ago, as you know, there was an open sort of partnership, I would say, between the Congress and the industry and the biopharmaceutical sector. There was sort of a, a, an agreement that we were going to put in place legislation and policies like the Medicare Part D prescription drug benefit in 2004. 20 years on, uh, we hear of nothing more than every week of more proposals sort of rolling back policies, almost adversarial. What the heck happened? How did we get here, John? <laughs> well, a, a lot's happened. I mean, look, 20-some years ago, I was wearing a lab coat. And I became a pharmacist because I, teenage me was just in awe of the role that medicines played in the health of my mom and, and others in my family. But while learning to care for patients, I became incredibly aware of the role of government and payer policy as barriers to patient access. So it became clear to me that this was how I was supposed to help patients working at the intersection of policy and research. But at the risk of oversimplifying things, pollsters on both sides of the aisle are telling politicians that voters are frustrated over drug prices and it's something to talk about. But when a pollster calls somebody's house and talks to them about the cost of their medicines, what the patient is talking about is what they're being asked to pay at the pharmacy counter. And that's a function of benefit design. So the perverse incentives about how and why that happened took me literally the last 20 years to understand. And hopefully that's something we can get into today because it's what we're discussing and researching at NPC every day. And what you find is... Yes, they're upset about the prescription drug benefit Part D, but if you look at the surveys on Part B, generally everyone's very happy with Part B. It's, it's really that donut hole and the out-of-pocket. What do you think we're going to do to try and square that circle? Well, I mean, let, let's kind of back up for a minute sure. first because the, the, the many people in Part D are getting what they need. Right. And, and many people in Part D don't even access the cost of what they pay in in premium. So over the last 20 years, we have come up with cures for hepatitis C. We've made HIV AIDS and some cancers, a chronic disease. Who would have ever thought that we'd be treating some cancers at home with a retail pharmacy benefit? So a lot of the frustration is coming from the fact that we don't have an out-of-pocket cap in, in, in Part D. But the drugs that we have available today are adding incredible value to patients' lives. It's, it's more like science fiction than anything that I learned in school. But we didn't have a prescription drug benefit when I was studying to be a pharmacist. And most of the spending that the program was intended to address was for primary care drugs. 
So there seems to be broad stakeholder support for an out-of-pocket cap in Part D, but how we pay for it should be based on good policy, not politics. And again, some of these politically expedient ways to pay for this ignore the realities of our shadowy system, and we really need to get at the heart of that problem and acknowledge the role of supply chain incentives. When you say shadowy system, what particularly are you talking about? Is it the role of the PBMs as the broker and the middleman and how these things are actually played out? You think it's lack of transparency that's causing issues? You know, I, I think it's three PBMs now managing about 80% of the drug claims in the United States. And they've now combined with health plans, specialty pharmacies, and other companies. And they have an untoward effect on not just what drugs patients can get, but where they can get them and how they pay for them. And you've, you know, stepping out of Part D, you've got more and more people in high deductible health plans. And even people in non-HDHPs have high drug deductibles. People didn't have drug deductibles before. And prescription medicines, for some reason, are the only healthcare good or service that when you're in the deductible or in your coinsurance phase, you're paying your out-of-pocket based on the billed amount, not the, uh, not the allowed amount or the paid amount. Right. So this has really led to some bizarre behavior. The PBM consolidation has led them to exclude more and more drugs. I, I think you've seen more evidence of that going back to about 2010. Sure. And they've been excluding those drugs so they can get more leverage for rebates and fees. Public sources show that PBMs are telling the government they work to negotiate lower drug prices, but when those lower drug prices are offered, they often turn them down. I mean, have you read the 2018 letter from Optum saying, hey, we think it's great that you guys are going to lower your prices, but if you do, you still have to pay us the rebate based on the, the old amount. <laughs> right. And so they kept into the contractual agreement, even though that the pricing actually dropped. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So and, but back to transparency, I, I think that QV Institute and many others have done a great job pointing out that there's not enough transparency to know where those rebates are going. But it's clear to me that they're not going to the patient. Getting back to Medicare Part D a little bit, if we look at when the bill was passed, it was seen as a huge success. And part of the reason... I think that we're dealing with this problem now is in many ways we're a victim of our own success. It has successfully spurred innovation where it was supposed to. It was supposed to create incentives to get niche indications and uh, genetic-based cancer treatments, orphan drugs, and that's what we're seeing now because if you look in 2004, the number one selling drug was Lipitor, which was no more than 2,000 bucks. Now, 5% of 2,000 bucks is one thing. 5% of 200,000 bucks is something completely different. Are we a victim of our own success here, and does that need to be looked at now? Yeah, I, I think we're we're a victim of our own success because the program did what it was intended to do, right? It, it provided people with coverage for the first time. It was a recognition that we now have the pharmaceutical technology to, to treat patients at home where they want to be, as opposed to, to in a hospital. And then it's not just that we've stimulated more development programs and have more treatments today. It's that we have treatments for things for a much smaller population right. of patients. Getting into the PBMs now that are related to this deductible, they're supposed to provide a brokerage. That money then flows back to the patients. Part of the problem is that 5% that has to go into a specialty pharma do end up paying that out of pocket. And what's not observed then or understood we're not really concerned about those 5% fees. What the pharmaceutical companies and the PBMs are looking at are the premiums. And those are generally low. So for 95%, it works, <laughs> right? You know, you know in, in, in 2006, I think, CBO predicted that the Part D premium in 2013 would be $56. <laughs> and you know what it was in 2013? $35. You know what it is today? 
thirty-five dollars exactly. Right? So, <laughs> so you combine the way that the, the the rebates are working and the fact that the reinsurance is calculated on that list price again, not the net price. So the spending moves on, and everybody just pushes people to this back end where the government picks up the, the the reinsurance. And I want to be careful not to criticize anyone I've ever worked with before, but when I read the CMS actuaries report every year, every year they say we were wrong. We underestimated the impact of rebates and how much they would grow this year. Sure. And I just have to ask, how many years in a row <laughs> as an actuary could you say that you ignored something that's happening right John, now? John, you have worked for government, right? <laughs> I mean, probably inevitably, this begs the question then, should the premiums go up to reduce that cap? Would that, is that potentially a, a give back and a negotiation that could potentially happen? Do you think that there's scope in this climate for even some type of negotiation? Here? Well, I mean, no, no policymaker wants the Part D premium to go up on their watch, right? Nobody who's selling a, a PDP wants to... Um, be the one that's higher. Um, they, they know that consumers shop for a lower premium. And if you look what's happening in Medicare Advantage, which is growing by leaps and bounds, you take the rebates from these drugs, use them to buy down your, your Medicare Advantage bid. You have to give some of that money back to consumers. And when you do, you offer more benefits. The more benefits you offer leads to a higher star rating. The higher star rating allows you to keep a bigger spread between the bid and the benchmark. Right. So, so this, this problem has created a very successful program in some ways. But when you stop and, and, and look at it and view it through the, the eyes of the people who are trying to access these more costly medicines... You know, Scott Gottlieb's point that the sick are subsidizing the healthy comes true. Absolutely. And the perverse thing about it, really, when you look at it, is a lot of the heat ends up falling on the pharmaceutical companies themselves. But when you look at the balance sheets of the companies, say, for example, we wrote an article in STAT about this as part of the HR3 analysis. We were looking at Medicare spend versus the balance sheets of the actual companies. And we did a sort of a deep dive of forensic audit on those 10K reports. And what we found was Medicare and Medicaid, not the whole U.S. population, you were having like $4 billion in sales for insulin, yet the companies themselves, for the entire U.S. market, and Medicare is only those over 65, so for the entire U- U.S. market, they were only billing $2 billion on their balance sheet. So there's like a $2 billion ether that, that money is going somewhere. Obviously, it's going through the PBMs and ending up where? <laughs> where, well, where, you know, where does it go? We, we've seen more and more research that now shows that more than half of the money that's being attributed to drug spending, and I'm using quotes Quo- here, we're, yeah, a lot of air quotes, we're folks. not on camera, air right? quotes, folks, yes. Um, what, what, what we're referring to as drug spending, about half of that money is actually flowing to somebody else. And my members are coming out with their transparency reports, and they're telling the public, like, look, we invented a class of medicines, right? <laughs> look, 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 yeah. Yeah. This is, this is what we charged for it when we launched it. This is what we're being reimbursed for it today. And and this is how much of it we get to keep. And when you add up the Medicaid inflation penalties, you add up the piece that the PBMs are keeping, you add up the the, the 340B money that's being siphoned by other parts of the system. It's putting a lot of pressure on balance sheets. You're a CMS alum. They've been now putting pressure on accelerated approval drugs, we just saw with the Agihelm treatment. So not only do you have the pricing pressure through the PBMs and the general formularies, now you're seeing that we're actually bifurcating the pathway based on if it's an accelerated approval or not. 
Were you surprised that CMS took that hard line? I mean, they threatened it with CAR-T, and eventually they just decided on a 15-year registry. You know, let, let me zoom out a bit, right? Because I, I, I want to be careful not to talk about any specific product. But sure. there is a huge unmet need in many disease areas, including Alzheimer's. Back home in Florida, people in my building ask me all the time about when the new drugs that they're going to he- that they hear about are going to be available to them and how they can get them. They don't ask me whether or not the accelerated approval pathway needs reform. We need to be really careful about making decisions that limit access only to those willing or qualified to participate in a clinical trial. So when I talk to people outside the library or the pool, I'd rather tell them how they can access these new medicines, not disappoint them with clinical trial exclusion criteria. And when we testified in regarding what would happen, we said, look, you know, if this goes the way it's going now and this is approved in its current form, we're going to see these drugs pulled off the market and Adjahelm's been pulled. Do the congressmen and the senators understand that? Do they get that now or is it just politics because we're in an election year? You know, I, I, don't, I don't know what they know, but what, what, what I do know is that the accelerated approval pathway is doing what it was intended to do, provide access to treatment for serious unmet conditions as quickly as possible. We've seen incredible benefits to patients from drugs approved via this pathway, which balances the well-established use of biomarkers with a benefit-risk framework that's appropriate for the population that's being treated. And the big reason I'm at this meeting, Dwayne, is to hear the results of the research that you're going to be releasing <laughs> at this meeting tomorrow. But if I think anything, I think it's that we need to be really careful and be sure we don't go too far the wrong way, such that too few drugs reach patients early enough to make a difference. Or to your point, you're right, they never make it to market at all. So the Palome bill that's being proposed in um, energy and commerce, that right now puts a five-year cap. And I think everyone thinks that's plenty of time. What we found in our analysis is a lot of those drugs have taken up to 18 years. The Goucher's drug of Genzyme took 18 years, and it only had a 40-person confirmatory trial. That's all that was there because that's all you could grab onto. It was a very, very small indication. What you see in the data is that about a quarter of these, 25% of the drugs that are under the accelerated approval are very small niche indications for genetic-based conditions with genetic biomarkers, extremely thin. And to give a little taster to you, you haven't seen the results, The smaller the indication and the smaller the clinical trials, the longer the confirmatory trial takes and the higher likelihood that the NPV, the investment calculation, is negative. So you can actually calculate the negativity of the curve. If these things are passed, we are of the opinion that these things will not come to market. I agree with you 100% that one of the things that we see borne out in our research time and time again is the immense value that these medications bring to patients to help them improve their lives and in many cases reduce overall costs. And, you know, look, I, I actually came out to this meeting on Saturday because I attended a short course on product and company valuation on Sunday. How was, how was that? It was awesome. It was awesome. <laughs> I, I learned so much. And, and one of the things, I mean, I, I was unaware of the concept of risk adjusted net present value. Yeah, right? okay. Fine. So so when I learn how those models are built and what would happen if somebody goes back in and tinkers with the length of time that was in the model or worse they go in and tinker with the original price on which the model was based. Yeah, the whole thing falls apart. The whole thing falls apart and and if and it's my job to make a decision whether or not I want to invest in this early enough to to to, to bring it to life. If you start telling me that I can't trust these models anymore, that's that's something that would make it really hard to do my job. That's the part that I think policymakers don't understand. 
again. There's, you know, there, there's all these talking points about like, oh, pharma companies don't discover medicines anymore. They, 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 they buy companies or buy assets. And, and they act like that means that, that they've somehow de-risked the market. And, and that's entirely not true. In reality, it's, they're buying that risk. There, there was something that was published earlier this year by the CBO, and I, and, I, and I don't often point to Congressional Budget Office publications, but they actually did a really good job in January, February of this year, really talking about how complicated and full of risk this industry actually is. And they even took on the profitability arguments, right? Because industry critics like to say, oh, pharma is the most profitable stakeholder out there. And, and they ignore the fact that the, the, the PBMs and the wholesalers are occupying, you know, 10 of the spots in the Forbes Top 20. But CBO went so far as to say, like, you can't assess profitability over an individual product. You've got to look across all the development programs. So if there's one thing I could change as it relates to the accelerated approval process or the whole drug pricing conversation, it's really helping policymakers understand how sophisticated this ecosystem is, that these changes don't happen in a vacuum. And if you start to tinker with things over here, you're ultimately going to hurt patients. 90 9.5% of all Alzheimer's clinical developments have failed. 99.5%. When you're an investor and you were going into that market to try and develop an asset, you were immediately taking that risk calculation of 99.5% failure into the maximal investment that you can make in that asset. If you have a choice of doing that and your opportunity cost is extremely high, or you have the ability to invest in an app or self-driving cars, uh, self-driving cars, or God knows <laughs> yep. what. You know, the fact is, we're going to start making this environment extremely inhospitable to the investment community, particularly with the equity markets. Heck, the Nasdaq took a five percent drop yesterday. This is a very tough environment. There is a problem, and it's a real problem, if you're on a limited income and you have a very expensive oncology product. There's no question that that can be difficult. If we do put in these hard caps on Medicare out-of-pocket costs. Do you think that that becomes viable? Is that possible to get that across the aisle? That would require some type of legislative agreement between Dems and Republicans in the U.S. House and Senate. Is that even viable right now with the current climate? Politics is a is a really tricky subject right now because of, sure. you know, I mean, we've there's a lot going on on, on June 14th in, yes. in, in the United States. So I, I don't know that, that my crystal ball can predict that. But you're absolutely right. I, I, I think there's a real difference between price and affordability. I think there's a real difference between launch price and benefit design. And manufacturers of new products understand this. And they want to find ways to work with payers to get these products to market. Unfortunately, the system that we have doesn't allow that. And as we start to talk about solutions, that's where some of the politics start to, to, to leak back in again. And, and there, are, there are some policymakers out there that I just can't help but feel because of the statements that they're making. They're reciting talking points and just want to stick it to an industry right. as opposed to actually try to fix a system. Some of the research you'll see tomorrow, we looked at 363 of the drugs that have originated and been approved by FDA, both biologics and new molecular entities over the last 10 years. Roughly 47.9% of all medicines, so half, 50% of all drugs that are currently approved in the United States by FDA, 50% have been created and originated by small biotech companies, $500 million of revenue or less, U.S. companies. 
the creative engine for these new products is coming from American small yep. biotech. And that is whom is most at risk given these regulatory attacks. A lot of these are your members. What are your members saying to you about some of these things, particularly on the small biotech side? You know, I, I think they have continued to illustrate the risk that some of these policies represent. And, and I've you know, really enjoyed since taking this job, really getting under the hood with some of our members to actually understand how the development process works, how the commercialization process works, how the reimbursement system works. So we can do better research to illustrate to policymakers just what you said. If you start tinkering with this stuff, it's going to lead to fewer people at the beginning. And you may think like, oh, we passed this bill. Congratulations. It's over. But there's no mechanism that says like, well, what happens if, if in five years we start to see fewer development programs? As I look back, I was a student at the time. Shortly around the time of the Clinton health reform debate, there was research that showed that there was a decrease in new development programs starting. Mm -hmm. And what the Clinton proposal was, was like a 15% rebate. Yeah. Far, far, far less than a 95% excise tax <laughs> or some of the other stuff that they're, that they're talking about today. So again, I, I think monkeying with the system is to do so at the risk of harming patients. I live in Europe. And what's concerning to me is some of the bad parts of European healthcare regarding the HTA process, you know, putting that in place. We've seen a huge correlation of those activities of HTA and the loss of productivity and development of assets in Europe. It's been an absolute bloodbath on the development of new assets and innovation in Europe. It's, everything's been coming here. In fact, in Q1 of 2020, quarter one of 2020 in February, Right before COVID hit, 80% of all the listings on the NASDAQ were biotech listings. So the problem is when you have CMS now starting to go down this path where they're in many senses overruling an FDA decision that they will no longer cover, does that position them as something like a European HTA in your opinion? You know, I, I think if we go down a road where the newest technologies aren't immediately available, that's a major shift to what patients have grown accustomed to in the United States. We need to think really carefully about that. That's a hallmark of our system. You hit the nail on the head with, with some of the things that, that, that you said, and I just can't help but recall it was in New Zealand and, and Australia around 2005, 2006, I think, you know, we had the launch of Herceptin in yeah. the United States, right? So there's this international news about new ways to, to more specifically treat a certain type of breast cancer, and women in New Zealand weren't able to get it. The UK, NICE, originally overruled Herceptin on the price benefit, but fortunately women are 50% of the population and they vote. <laughs> so it got over, it became a political issue then. HTA became a political issue. So, so this is my concern about health technology assessment. You can do these studies and you can abstract these studies and you can do press releases that really sounds, that makes it sound like a sophisticated science. I think it's a science that's entirely based on its assumptions. I think if it's government-based, the potential for those assumptions to become politically motivated becomes even higher. We just did some research at NPC with the folks at Tufts that looked at the non-governmental HTA body that we have in the United States. Mm -hmm. and, and we asked other teams of researchers to look at ICER's evaluation of PARP1 inhibitors for ovarian cancer. What we found was that ICER's estimates were neither accurate nor precise. When you give other teams of researchers the opportunity to ask the same questions and design their models. The results vary, but all of their results include ranges and error bars. It's not a point estimate that's being released and 
picked up by the press as just that single point. So again, I think HTA is a process that's driven largely by assumptions. And if you design your assumptions to justify price controls, then that's exactly what your results are going to be. So U.S. HTAs are 100, 125,000 per quality, give or take. New Zealand's 15,000. So does my life become one-tenth as valuable because I cross over into New Zealand? Technically, I guess, yes. But is that fair? No. And if you're a drug producer, I mean, that's going to be really difficult to meet that barrier. And that means the U.S. taxpayer ends up carrying the brunt of the load, which we are now. You know, you can go on and on and on. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at some countries overseas where like the approval process includes these endpoints, but the reimbursement process doesn't value those those endpoints. And it was great to be back at ISPOR this year. And there was so much focused on what HTA ignores, you know, the yeah. other parts of the value flower that, that we like to refer to it as. Like hospital overhead costs, which are never incorporated into that calculation. Right. right. And, and, and caregiver burden and scientific yeah. spillover. Like there's just, there's just so much that is deliberately excluded. And, and I just have grave concerns about any government using that kind of science to, to justify access to medicines. Build Back Better was killed off, but it may be coming back. So we may get back to build back better, I guess, or (laughs) whatever you want to call it. It looks like the one thing that everyone can agree on in a bipartisan fashion is the drug pricing stuff. There's a lot of popularity around this. Now that negotiation assumed a 90% profit cap if you were unwilling to negotiate. Is that really a fair negotiation? You mean, what kind of negotiation is that? You, you mean the reality of price controls, right? <laughs> yes, because yeah. I, look, I read that bill and my dictionary many times and I still can't find the negotiation section. Telling, <laughs> telling a seller that you can have this price or that price or accept a 95% excise tax. It's not a negotiation. That's a price control. What do you think is going to happen with the Build Back Better negotiations? Where does this go? <sighs> you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a good crystal ball on that. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to follow what's being talked about in the press and, and, and read the tea leaves. I just think that the system that is being talked about today is a form of price regulation. And NPC has done a number of studies that show what happens if you do price regulation. You have, yeah. a, you have a decrease in innovation. We did a, a, a panel with Exenda talking to payers. And we said, hey, if this happened, you'd apply these savings to like the patient out-of-pocket costs, right? And, and, and the results were no. It's unlikely <laughs> to get passed on to the patient. Um, CBO and others may disagree on how many drugs precisely we won't see. But they all agree that there will be fewer drugs bought to market. So, again, I think the impact on investment on early biotech is, is often overlooked. And, and I really hope that what they're currently talking about doesn't materialize. Obviously, you were in the Trump administration. The, the differential in price between the U.S. and Europe was a huge, huge argument or discussion at that point. That's the elephant in the room. The U.S. taxpayer is overwhelmingly subsidizing and underwriting global innovation now. That's the downside. On the upside, we're capturing all of that technology and we're having enormous dominance in global innovation here, particularly in biotechnology and biopharma in the United States. If you look at the last 10 years of investments of the companies that would have been impacted by HR3, it's about half a trillion dollars of partnership investment that was done. 421 billion of that 500 billion came to the US globally, foreign direct investment and internal investment. And the next largest investment number was 
Switzerland with about 30 billion. That's how dominant the U.S. has become. What happens if we start to the sector as a whole, if we start rolling out these price controls? Will we see huge reductions in value creation and even assets? Well, what, what I'm hearing from ex-U.S. people at, at this meeting, whether, whether they're investors or whether they're developers, honestly, I've heard from some health ministers in the past, is they can't have what they have and do it the way they do if we start to do that here. Right. I am not just concerned about the fact that we would attract less investment and and have fewer development programs in the United States. I think that I'm concerned about the ripple effect that begins to happen elsewhere. We were willing to hold the hands a little bit of some of our colleagues in NATO, which is 11 to 12% of GDP, to try and get greater contributions. Why wouldn't we do that with healthcare? Should this be a trade issue? That's a good question. I, I think this administration is, is struggling with how to approach some of those <laughs> global trade issues. I think it's something the previous administration struggled with. You know, it, it, administrations aren't monolithic bodies. There's a lot of people with a lot of opinions in there. And um, I think it has the potential to be a trade issue, but it's something that needs to be gone into eyes wide open. It can't just be, we're going to do it this way over here right. and, and, and think that it's going to happen in a vacuum. In the new creative and various ways to try and attack drug pricing, we've now had a can opener applied to some of the discussions around the Bayh-Dole legislation. <laughs> and Senator Elizabeth Warren was proposing to use a provision in Bayh-Dole called Marching Rights to attack drugs that the senator felt were unfavorably priced, shall we say, to try and lower those prices. What are marching rights? First of all, the, the talking point that the government invented medicines because of grant funding and early basic science research is just wrong, right? So the Baydol Act was created to allow businesses and academic institutions to own or license the technology developed in part with federal funding. Before the Baydol Act, important inventions were gathering dust and that R&D was being wasted. But I think messing with Bidol today to lower drug prices would send us back the other way. Adding more risk to the drug development process is going to harm innovation and further erode the important trust and collaboration that this legislation created between the government and the private sector. We've done a peer-reviewed study on this. We also released a deck that was not peer-reviewed, but we, the study's not out, unfortunately. We were hoping we would have it this week. But we did a deep dive on 24,000 NIH grants. And from that, we found 8,000 patents, plus or minus. And some of that IP ended up in roughly 44 drugs that had filed an IND. And what you find is if you take the funding flows between the private sector and the NIH, and then you put it into a regression, a probability model, essentially the probability of an NIH-funded 100% product coming to market is statistically zero. But a product that's nearly 100% funded by the private sector, where it has you know, some NIH funding, but then nine, over 90% private sector funding, you're approaching 60% probability of market entry. In other words, the more money that comes from the private sector, the more likely you are to see that product come to market. We just don't see that government has the ability to bring stuff to market. Why is this misperception being communicated that this is all government funded when in fact the government's important for basic research, but we just don't see that illustrated in the actual data? It's a talking point. I mean, I, I, I hate to keep coming back to this, but there is a 
well-funded, well-organized effort to criticize this industry, and it ignores a lot of realities about how it works, right? So I'm very interested in seeing the research you described, but I loved when you and Dr. McMurray Heath talked about this, and, yeah. and she talked about, hey, look, I was there, yeah. right? And, and nothing that I saw when I was there gave me the confidence that this was an institution who was ready to develop and commercialize and bring to market important products and cures. Chris Austin, formerly of NCATS, now with uh, Flagship Pioneering, We did a podcast with him. We actually presented to him before we published, and he actually advised on the publication. And he was, in his podcast, he fully endorses uh, the results of that research. So even, and we also did a couple presentations internally in the NIH. And we tell people that, and it's like, wow, were they upset? It's like, well, no, actually, they were quite complimentary for most of the parts, because they agree with it. It's Mm -hmm. not them. It's... The political environment. The political environment ignores the reality of tech transfer, and it ignores the reality of governments getting involved early with basic science funding, right? I mean, and and you you could try to make the same argument to, like, GME funding and physician practices, and and nobody's talking about that. Okay, John, biopharma sector is getting hit every which way from Sunday, every direction possible. We're here at Bio. Lovely San Diego day, 72 degrees. You wouldn't know the stock market's <laughs> crashing. <laughs> Everything's terrible. You know, everything's wonderful here. Where are we going to be a year from now? Let's say we sit down a year from now at the next bio. We have this conversation. Where, where do you think we are? You know, again, I, 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 don't, I don't have a crystal ball, but I'll tell you what I think should happen and what okay. we're committed to at NPC. Too often, the conversations in D.C. are focused on horse trading and sausage making, not clear-eyed conversations that you're talking about or the data that you're preparing. We're focused on the impact of proposed policies on patients and access to innovation. Policymakers need to have a clear understanding of how the system works and how interconnected it is. The patent system, public and private coverage, patient assistance programs, all of these things were designed to encourage new drugs to come to market and to help patients get access to them. But now we have these perverse incentives that cause a preference for high rebates over low prices. We have accumulators or maximizers or alternative funding mechanisms or whatever you want to call them, causing employers to make specialty drugs non-essential health benefits so they can maximize patient assistance programs and leave patients with surprise co-pays. We've seen hospital consolidations that have led to huge markups that commercial payers have to pay. Heck, even the well-intentioned 340B program has been turned into an ATM machine to access drug company money. If we don't look at the big picture and keep the patient at the center of that picture, there's a real risk for harming patient access, either by limiting access to medicines or limiting the development of new medicines. So what NPC is going to do over the next 12 months is more research about the true cost of medicines and the value they bring to patients, as well as the shortcomings of HTA and other efforts to set drug prices so that policymakers and others can understand that tinkering with this system for political gain has the real potential to hurt patients. John, it's been a pleasure talking to you, sir. It's been great talking to you. And again, I am really looking forward to to seeing the the research that you've talked about today. You're a really important voice in this uh, this industry and in this science. And I look forward to continuing to work with you. Well, John, the MPC is the same. And we have a great team here at Vital Transformation. And we look forward to our continued collaboration, sir. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dwayne. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen O'Laughlin. This Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2022.